Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. This week, I'm not going to do the five faces of Torah. Instead, we're going to do this all in one take, walking through the Parsha from beginning to end. This Parsha has a lot of details and a lot of laws, and sometimes it can be very hard to keep track of the overall plot. I'll do my best, though. That said, I wrote a story for this week that I published in my Torah Shorts book that really hits in the main points nicely. If you'd like me to post a copy of the story, just let me know. Let's get started. So Parshat Mishpatim is a collection of laws. They may seem somewhat random, but I believe they have an order. They're showing us a path from slavery to the realization of our full potential. The reading starts with slavery, as I just said. Notice that nobody, though, is guilty for putting a person in slavery. It has simply happened due to extreme circumstances, just as it happened to the people in Egypt. Despite this, there are rules. Male slavery, which is focused on labor, has a time limit. It has a time horizon. It is limited. Female slavery, which is assumed to lead to things other than the use of labor, is only for marriage. Despite the extreme reality that would lead to enslavement, we do not allow the suspension of law. Even in this case, law puts a boundary on the deprivations of reality and destruction is limited. The process of making a slave permanent shows the cost of such a decision, the decision to become a permanent slave. The slave must drive in all through his ears and into the doorpost. Through our ears we listen. Specifically, we listen to God. By driving in all through his ear, the slave signifies that the connection to God is fractured. By driving it into the doorpost, the slave subsumes himself to the family. He is a part of their identity, but he doesn't have his own identity. He himself is not dedicated to Hashem. He is dedicated to them. After the marker of permanent slavery, we switch to the most direct kind, uh, crimes, hitting hard enough to kill, and then move slowly down the severity and intent ladder, ladder. The next group of laws continue in this human-enforced vein. They offer hope, they offer legal management of disputes, they preserve opportunity, they make law the breathing force of social stability, and like the laws of almost every society, they limit destruction within the community. They have a lot in common with the standard legal codes of the region. As the laws proceed, though, they begin to specifically relate to the Jewish people. Like an organism growing from seed, the people start off looking like any other Mesopotamian society, but soon they shift into something distinct. The first indication of something distinct comes with the laws of marriage. Marriage seems like an obvious idea that is universally connected to religion, but that is only a reflection of the influence of these ideas. After all, Yehuda sleeps with a prostitute who is called a Kadesha, almost a holy woman. Societies, including Midian, use prostitution and orgy, both of which were inherently confused the relationship between fathers and children as a part of their religious practice. In contrast, the Torah is focused strongly on the idea of an unbroken and clear chain from parents to children forming the basis of an unending relationship with God. This process depends on providing for children, but also on protecting the traceability of their parental lineage from Harsinai to the present day. In a way, there is a mutual obligation to support one another's capabilities. Only a woman has the potential to bear a child. Only a woman can provide an environment that provides for a fetus. A man can't undermine that. He has to support the woman. Likewise, only a man has the reproductive will to inseminate a woman. A woman can't undermine the expression of that will by clouding who the father of a child is. We see that in the laws here. If a man sleeps with a betrothed virgin, he becomes obligated to marry her, should her father approve. And if the father doesn't approve, the man has to pay. The man exercises his procreative will, and the woman who provides the environment within which the child must be cared for must in turn be provided for. And right after this law, we are then commanded to ensure sorceresses don't live. Unlike the magicians of Egypt, who could imitate the plagues, the sorcerers of Egypt accomplish nothing. They seem to employ sleight of hand rather than actual magic or science. Interestingly, this law specifically concerns female sorcerers. 
The reason a seduced virgin is entitled to marriage or money is because whatever child she has will clearly be hers. The man has to help provide for the child. The man is cast as the seducer. He's the guilty party, not the other way around. A female illusionist, though, can undermine society in an even more fundamental way by clouding the relationship between fathers and children. These laws of Jewish distinction start with broken relationships because they are a corollary to murder. A society in general is undermined by murder, but a Jewish society in particular is undermined by broken relationships, family relationships. The next law involves sexual intercourse with animals. While they, this may seem like an ordinary prohibition to modern Western eyes, it could also be considered a victimless crime. The practice is far from unheard of in many regions of the world. Khomeini's Little Blue Book has the following law. A man who has had sexual relations with an animal, such as a sheep, may not eat its meat. This normalizes the practice. The prohibition on bestiality is the next step. To waste your reproductive opportunity doesn't undermine the families that define a society, but it does symbolically waste the power to create and build in this world. It distances us from the divine example. Finally, we come to sacrificing to other gods. Those who do so are not just to be killed, but annihilated. To sacrifice to another god is to dedicate your physical creation to their values, or at least their power. Where many ancient civilizations accepted a broad pantheon of divine figures, our society is not to have elements contrary dedicated to contrary value systems. Modern American civilization would seem not to share this approach. After all, religious toleration is key to the Constitution. But even modern Americans do not tolerate those who undermine the constitutional order. They can be shunned or even executed. Even the most liberal of Western nations have fundamental values which they defend coercively. And I would say the sets of values being def uh, defended coercively are expanding. If they were to fail to do so, then they would risk elimination through the undermining of their own identities. This law, the enforcement of the most basic aspect of a divine nation's mission, is the last in this set of socially enforced laws. It is also the most distinct. It not only maintains a society, it maintains the core values of this society. All the socially enforced laws speak to bad apples within a society, but a society as a whole can go bad as well. And so we have two externally enforced laws at the end. They demand that strangers, widows, and orphans not be afflicted. With this, we fight against real-world risk. And they demand that the lending with interest or taking a man's garment as collateral be prohibited. With this, we ignore real-world real risk. We take steps towards holiness itself. The punishment for infractions against these statutes is delivered by God because their violation indicates not damaged individuals within a society, but a society that is itself damaged. To recap the socially enforced laws, we can see a trend from generalization towards distinction, but we also have a process of habituation. As Aristotle wrote, moral virtue is formed by habits. We become just by the practice of just actions, self-controlled by exercising self-control, and courageous by performing acts of courage. In this partial, the people are becoming divine through a circle of habituation. Habituation to limit the worst of circumstance. Habituation to step by step limit the destruction of society, to make it function as any society would. But then it continues with habituation to make us ever more godly and distinct. As we are habituated, the need for social and direct punishment falls away. We can continue on the path towards this divine virtue with a positive experience of that path being sufficient to habituate us to it. 
This process of positive habituation continues with respect for the law itself. Fear of the law is driven by punishment, but respect is far greater and more effective. The world is full of legal codes that have little impact on real life. To grow beyond what is enforced, we need to have respect for the law itself. This is why we are commanded not to revile godly judges or curse a prince within the people. A prince is not simply a powerful person. This is a prince specifically called out as being within the people, not somebody who lords over them. In a way, we're respecting the legitimate judicial and executive branches of a society. Legislation, of course, is handled by Hashem. We then continue this habituation with some initial steps on the road towards investing and protecting our relationship to God. We invest by dedicating the gifts of the firstborn and full crops to Hashem. And we protect by giving torn meat to dogs instead of eating it. A torn animal does not die in an act which is dedicated to a higher purpose. It dies due to natural risks. Its death is not connected to the spiritual or physical growth of the people. The meat is thus tainted with an association with its loss. By giving the meat to dogs, it serves a purpose without undermining our spiritual standing. Respecting judges is only step one. We take it further when we are commanded to act fairly and honestly in matters of justice. Our own personal prejudices and relationships should not bind us blind us from what is appropriate, and we don't publish the, punish the innocent, such as a donkey, just because they are under the control of the guilty. Having invested in law, we can execute it fairly. We can come to respect it and obey it because of that respect. With these laws, we have a society with the tools necessary for a self-regulating, stable, and generally accepted legal system. All of this provides a baseline for an ever stronger divine relationship. What follows are the laws of that relationship, all of them, like any explicit punishment, they are simply an opportunity to draw closer to the divine. That closeness is its own reward. Initially, we see the laws of the sabbatical and the Sabbath. These reflect an investment of production and timeless rest. Both the Sabbath and the sabbatical are opportunities to imitate the divine cycle. Next, we see we are not to mention other gods. While sacrificing to other gods was punished by death, delivered by the society itself, here any acknowledgement of those gods is forbidden. By voluntarily excluding other value systems, we draw ever closer to Hashem. We are then commanded to have three yearly holidays. The first for Pesach, we were commanded before. But the next two are connected to the harvest and ingathering of produce. They are commanded here for the first time. In this context, they all speak to a joyful recognition of the blessings of the divine. We are not just investing our funds in the Shabbat, we are investing our souls in the festivals of the Lord. Like the offering of the firstborn, these laws represent an investment in building the divine relationship. The final group of laws captures the flip side of this investment, protection of it. First, we do not offer leavened bread. In almost all circumstances, an offering of leavening would represent spiritual theft because leavening adds to bread almost without human effort unlike the grinding of flour. Offering leavening involves bringing that which does not represent our own labor. We are also not to let the fats of our offering remain until morning. Among other things, the inner fats being referenced, the visceral fats, physically protect the organs and protect an emergency source of energy. An animal is able to survive extreme adversity because of these inner fats. They are thus a physiological representation of resistance to loss within the individual animal. Just as our investments in timelessness are holy, these fats are a physiological representation of holiness within the animal itself. We have no right to disregard these products. To do so would be an act of spiritual waste. Next, we are commanded to bring first fruits to God's house. This would seem to be an investment in the divine relationship, not a protection of it. But the first fruits are not like other produce. We are generally forbidden from offering fruit. Fruit trees and their products are a gift from God and do not represent our own effort investment. The gift of these fruits is not an investment in the divine relationship. Instead, it is an acknowledgement of Hashem's beneficence to us. It thus protects the divine relationship by preserving Hashem's position in it. Finally, we are commanded not to cook a kid in its mother's milk. 
Where the fats discussed before preserve the animal from moment to moment, the milk preserves the species from generation to generation. The milk is a hopeful and promising connection to the future. By cooking a kid in its mother's milk, we destroy the milk's spiritual value. We commit a fundamental act of spiritual nullification. We protect the spiritual. We do not nullify it. What we've seen then is a pattern of habituation, a pattern of growth, whereby we can learn how to protect and grow the spiritual within our society and within ourselves. Of course, as with any good relationship, our relationship with Hashem isn't built by one party alone. Hashem also invests in the people, and so He promises that His angel will accompany them to the land and that He will defend them. He promises them that they will be able to live in a more lossless world, a world in which bread and water are filled with potential or blessing, a world without sickness and a world in which people live full lives. Most critically, He promises a world without miscarriages or barren women. We invest our future in Hashem, and He in turn provides us with that future. He promises us a land waiting for us, with those who worship other ideals driven away. We are to build and maintain that relationship. By doing so, it becomes possible for us to serve as a beacon of the divine in this world. We see here that the people are rising towards the transformation towards the Yovel that they missed at Harsinai, and that the law is bringing them there. With the people now established, and with the core of their national identity and national life defined, they can finally do what Yitro did before the giving of the Torah. They can bring an offering to Hashem. Prior to this point, no national offerings had been brought to Hashem. The Paschal Lamb was offered by small groups of families, not by tribes or by the nation. In preparation for the offering, Moshe builds twelve pillars, one for each tribe. The youth offer twelve oxen. As before, oxen represent a generic nation. The offerings are described as both a transfer, ole, offering, and a complete conversion, zevach shlamim, offerings. In essence, the tribes are giving the totality of themselves, not just their future, to Hashem. Those who bring complete conversion offerings place themselves within the offering. As the youth represent a defined and unhopeful future, they also represent the nation. By placing themselves within the auction, they represent a young nation dedicating the entirety of itself to God. In a unique procedure, the blood of these offerings is sprinkled on both the altar and on the people. But the sprinkling of blood <clears throat> carries with it ominous undertones. While the shared dedication of the animal spiritual will binds the children of Israel and Hashem together, it also raises the people up to dizzying heights. They are in some ways being compared to Hashem as equals. The pillars which represent the people strengthen this image. This enhanced self-image will manifest itself in very negative ways. But before things take a turn for the worse, the people reiterate their commitment to the covenant. Moshe reads the book of the covenant and the people ratify it once again. This time they utter the famous phrase, we will do and we will hearken. It is almost like they are quoting Aristotle. By carrying out these commands, the people will learn to hearken to them. They will be habituated to becoming Hashem's society. With this recommitment, God reciprocates both the people's dedication and their offerings. He brings Moshe, Aaron, two of Aaron's sons, and the 70 elders of Israel to a feast of his own. While there, they see the God of Israel. They are so comfortable that they eat and drink and are not endangered. With the addition of the laws, there is no terror even in the face of Hashem. They've overcome the terror that overcame them at Harsinai. In this scene, the God of Israel is described as having his legs on a floor of sapphire as pure as the heavens. This speaks to the power of the relationship. The heavens represent a floor, a world without loss. Nothing is dead in the sky, aside from some possible simian additions since satellite programs started. Even dead birds fall to the ground. Because of this distance from loss, the heavens are called Tahor. 
Hashem's feet are on a sapphire brick. The word for brick is bonage, to build or to form. And the word sapphire comes from the word sapir, which also, sefer, which also means book. The Jewish people had just signed a book of covenant with Hashem, so the God of Israel, the God of this relationship, stands in the forming of the book of the covenant. And this forming is as distant from loss as the heavens. It is full of potential and has not suffered any failures. It is in this situation the people see Hashem himself, not the people, the elders see Hashem himself. Not just the Elohei Yisrael, the God of Israel, that they don't ro'eh Hashem himself. Instead, they chazo, they have a vision of God. They can have some appreciation for the totality of Hashem's power. It is on this foundation, a foundation of law, of trust, of potential, of dedication, and of understanding that Hashem invites the people to build the Mishkan so that he may dwell among them. As we seek to rebuild our modern relationship with God, we must take careful stock of the nature of these laws. This section's code is a twist on the legal codes of its time and place. Those codes are re-emphasized with a focus on preserving individual potential, preserving the timeless change of our chain, chain of our society, and reinforcing our dedication to divine values. Perhaps in modern times we should do the same, twisting our modern state's legal systems towards an emphasis on these same values. Instead of individual rights, we should focus on individual potential, and we should start by limiting the damage caused to those with the greatest misfortune. Instead of atomic pleasure in the here and now, we should emphasize the far more fulfilling commitments to the past and to the future. All of this begs a question. What does this legal storytelling add to our ability to lead an impactful life as individuals and as a nation? Why not just catalog all the laws by subject matter? Shouldn't all the laws about murder be in one area, with all the laws about property damage in another? Why have a story? As we read the national story, we should apply it to ourselves. As the nation steps through the uneven process of growth that those who left Egypt went through, we should walk the same path. As we personally walk the path of the Exodus, we can experience these transitions. We are brought out from Egypt. A four-year-old child of the Seder understands that. In time, we take the beginnings of responsibility, but then we fail to trust Hashem in the face of death. In response to that, we learn to regulate ourselves. We draw close to Hashem once again, and step by step we develop, we habituate ourselves to a relationship with God. The path is far from straight, but with it we can become greater than the most obedient of angels. So what can the future hold? Perhaps it can bring the design and construction of the Mishkan, the place where Hashem can dwell within us. And perhaps it can bring us the Yovel, a world without pain and loss and suffering. We will see more in the readings to come. Once again, if you enjoyed any of the ideas in this reading, please feel free to share them. Thank you for listening. And Shabbat Shalom.